Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. We live in an amazing city, Washington, D.C. D.C. is rich with history. D.C. was a planned city designed to serve our nation's capital. Throughout the city's history, major plans of significant local and national events have shaped its design and growth. As we walk or drive down the streets of D.C., the buildings we pass have taken roles and have backstories about significant events that have shaped our city and our nation. GSA Public Building Service plays a huge role as steward of some of the most significant buildings. Today we have Nancy Witherall, Historic Preservation Officer for the National Capital Region, U.S. General Services Administration, Public Building Service. So Nancy, first, I want to thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I understand you have three stories to talk about, about some buildings, but before we get started, I'd like to ask you a little bit about GSA, the General Services Administration, and the Public Building Service. Most people are not familiar about the federal government as a major real estate player, but GSA Public Building Service manages approximately, what, almost 95 uh, million rentable square feet, plus owns lots of buildings and has a significant number of historic buildings. Uh, Tell us about GSA Public Building Service. Well, uh, thank you. We have about 1,600 buildings that GSA owns nationwide, and uh, about 500 or so are historic out of that 1,600. And out of that number, we have about 130 in the National Capital Region, which includes Washington, D.C., and the Maryland and Virginia suburbs. So we have a good quarter of the total number of historic buildings uh, in that GSA holds in the United States. And those are buildings that are either listed in the National Register of Historic Places or that we have determined are eligible for listing in the National Register. So they are all protected by us as historic buildings. And PBS is our real estate arm of GSA. And out of uh, its many functions and responsibilities includes the management and stewardship of our historic buildings and of the art um, that is associated with the buildings. So your role is of a historic preservation uh, uh, officer, correct? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that role and how you got into historic preservation. Well, um, I work with a team of very talented preservation specialists um, in our office in the National Capital Region, and we work with our colleagues at the national the GSA office as well and with our colleagues from other regions around the country. And um, we provide information and guidance on how to manage and preserve our buildings. Um, they need to be, they need to function as modern office buildings, as, as you can imagine. So we apply generally what we call the rehabilitation standard, which means we preserve the significant features and elements of buildings that we identify and determine are significant. But our obligation to our tenant agencies is to have our buildings function for 21st century office needs. Can, you know, there's such a rich inventory of historic buildings here in the capital uh, region. Um, and, and you said there's 130, uh-huh. I think. Imagine, uh-huh. well, that's a, that's a lot of buildings. <laughs> <laughs> How does the number of historic buildings in our region compare to the rest of the country? 
Yes, we, we have about 25% of the of the GSA's inventory nationwide. And, you know, that is because we're the capital in essence. Our, you know, our, all of our cabinet offices are here. Um, you know, we have a great presence. Um, we have many historic buildings in Washington. Not all of them are owned by GSA, of course. The, the Department of Defense has many. And most of the monuments that people think about are managed by the National Park Service. We also have the Smithsonian Museums and so forth. But GSA owns, on the whole, most of the historic office buildings in Washington. Sometimes we forget here in Washington, D.C., you know, as Washingtonians, we drive down the street every day and we don't realize the rich history that's behind us or the backstories that are associated with some of these buildings. When I was doing um, some research on this, I, I just... I, I get very excited and so glad that we live here. And most <laughs> of glad. the access of this, these buildings, and and especially for the National Park Service, it's free. It's just yeah. such a great city. Yeah. So there's so many historic buildings here. So what's your favorite? Oh, um, interesting. Maybe that's like picking your favorite child. Um, I I would say that the that the uh, pension building, which is now the Building Museum, which we'll be talking about in a little bit, is one of my favorites. And I think maybe in part because it's a museum for the building arts now. So all of its programs and exhibits um, relate to the narrative of how our buildings and our communities came to be. So to know that that um, wonderful educational function is happening inside of that beautiful building is, is really inspiring. And it's always nice to go in and see families and, and visitors from around the country coming I, to see it. I know I took my four kids there on several occasions, but we'll save that for a minute. I heard uh, that GSA, in conjunction with the Cultural Tourism DC, has created a heritage trail through the Federal Triangle area called Make No Little Plans. Tell us about that, because that's when I looked it up and read about it, it was, I'm going to go do it. That's right. And it's right there on the sidewalks. Um, it, uh, our federal triangle, as you may know, downtown is an actual triangle. And the hypotenuse is Pennsylvania Avenue. And the bottom street is Constitution. And it's 6th Street Northwest on the east side and 15th Street uh, Northwest on the west side. So the largest building at the west end is the Commerce Department. And on the east side is the Federal Trade Commission and all those buildings in between. So... Um, we, in addition to the kind of information that we provide online, we wanted something that was very physical and that um, anyone walking by could read about it. And so we have this trail of 16 signs, and we're part of a system that um, exists. There are many, many trails uh, that have been developed through communities and neighborhoods throughout Washington, D.C., and so we've made our Federal Triangle our community, our neighborhood. And um, you can... Go and you can see the signs in any order, but sign number one happens to be at the Archives Navy Memorial Metro. Mm -hmm. And what you what you do to follow the signs is you walk around the perimeter of the Federal Triangle, and we provide information not only on the planning of the Federal Triangle, which is very interesting, um, the architects. We learn um, aspects of the architecture, their historic photos showing some of the buildings under construction. We also learn about the agencies that were first scheduled to go in there. So it, most of them are still there, not all of them. And also these buildings are filled with artworks, particularly murals and sculpture. And so uh, the text on these signs just gives an idea of kind of a summary of why these buildings are very significant. And it's a nice way for us to be able to share photos of the inside of the building and some of the background stories of them um, if they're not open to the public. 
You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Our guest today is Nancy Withrall with GSA Public Billing Service. As I shared earlier, um, I understand you're going to share some stories about some historic buildings here in D.C., three particular ones that were associated with the Civil War and the aftermath in downtown D.C. So I I know we're not going to be able to cover it all in this segment, but let's begin by talking a little bit about Clara Barton's apartment and the missing soldiers. Sure, I'm happy to. And um, when you invited me to come and asked me to select several buildings, I thought it would be useful to talk about museums that are open to the public. So two of the three buildings we'll talk about today are open to the public. Yeah, great timing for, you know, summer and have something to do with the kids. And most of these museums are are close to free, if not free. That's right. Um, uh, and like I said, I've spent met with four kids. I have definitely <laughs> spent some time in some of these buildings. So the uh, so the first one I thought I'd talk about is the is the Clara Barton, her apartments and her missing soldiers office. And Clara Barton um, herself is a very um, interesting and admirable um, woman, a historic personage of of um, great respect and the history of our country. And she was is known primarily as the founder of the American Red Cross, but she was also very busy during the Civil War, and I think getting into her early humanitarian work that um, allowed her later to to become a national leader in founding the Red Cross. And she um, had an earlier um, claim to fame. Uh, she apparently, from what I've read, was the the first female clerk of the federal government. And not only that, but she was paid a salary that was equal to um, the salary of men doing the she, same work. She was clearly fearless and a, you know, <laughs> a, a trailblazer for all of us. We're very grateful for her. And just as an aside, she later became known for her participation in the suffragist movement as well. So she was an educator. So she was already working um, in, I think she was uh, raised in Massachusetts and also working in New Jersey and so forth. And she moved to Washington for the first time in 1854, and she worked as a recording clerk at the U.S. Patent Office. Now, you may know that the uh, Patent Office is now uh, the home of two Smithsonian museums, the National Portrait Gallery and the American Art Museum. But it was used to be the Patent Office, and her salary was $1,400 a year, $1,400 a year. And again, it was the same as men in the same position. So she was a trailblazer as an early clerk. However, in that era, we didn't have the civil service protections that we have now. And in fact, um, the administration was opposed to women working in government offices. So she was able to do this work in like 1854 and 55. But then her position and her salary were reduced. So she worked for a couple more years in that situation and then left. She returned to Massachusetts um, in the late 50s. But she returned in 1861 with a new administration, which was Abraham Lincoln's administration. And she returned to her patent office job. It's apparently at the same salary. But then the war began in um, 1861 in the spring. So she was living in this boarding house on 7th Street and the address is 437 7th Street. And that's the home of, you know, her home and the museum today. Well, let's hold that there. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll pick it up in the next segment. What an amazing woman. And I want to hear the rest about uh, this building. Um, I'm speaking with Nancy Witherall, GSA PBFs. Coming up, we'll talk about 
um, how uh, Clara Barton's apartment was discovered. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm your host, Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today we're talking with Nancy Withrall, GSA PBS. Nancy, let's continue our conversation about Clara Barton and her apartment. When was that building built? The building was built in the early 1850s, and it had offices on the first two floors. Um, in fact, I believe a patent attorney was in there and a dentist. Um, because it was near the patent office, actually many of those early commercial buildings in that area housed patent attorneys. And the, but the third floor was, was for boarding, and she had room nine on the third floor in that building. So she went there as a boarder um, to live there for her for her work back with the patent office. Mm-hmm. But when the war started, she began to become involved as a volunteer. And I believe it occurred because she saw that a troop of um, uh, Massachusetts, I guess they were what, military volunteers or soldiers, um, uh, were injured in a riot in Baltimore. And she saw that they needed help. So she wrote uh, I think she put an ad in a newspaper in Massachusetts asking for donations and supplies, and she began to receive them. So she really was storing supplies and collecting money in in her room in the boarding house on 7th Street. And this developed into a more serious position, and eventually she was um, paid for it. She, um, again, first started just by starting as a volunteer uh, collecting and distributing supplies, but in August of 1862, it's a very challenging, parlous uh, time uh, in, during the war, she gained official permission to transport supplies to the battlefield. And from then on, she was in battles. She, throughout the mid-Atlantic, I believe she went down as far as Charleston at one point, but she was at Antietam, for example, a, a very, uh, very bloody battle. And, uh, in fact, there's a memorial to her there, a monument on the, um, actually on the battlefield. So she was there. She was nursing. She was assisting, uh, training others. She was distributing supplies. She would go in with supplies and was there during the battle and would help as she could with the soldiers. So... um, I I understand she even was under fire. She had some clothing that was actually... Unfortunately, she wasn't injured, but yes, that actually that was a bullet went through her sleeve. Thank at, goodness at she one had those big puffy sleeves. Yep, on. that's true. <laughs> from that time period, you can see those in her. Uh, the, there are several photographs of her portrait uh, portraits of her. She really leaned in. I mean, this is a woman way behind, uh, you know, before her time, and really leaned in to. She saw she something. Saw, she saw her role. And she acted. Yeah. Yep. So, so she went up and down the East Coast. Are there other buildings that are significant? around these efforts that she was doing during the Civil War? Well, I can say that she received, you know, as the war was ending in March of 1865, she received approval from Lincoln to address this growing problem of how to find missing soldiers. Families, you can imagine, their, their loved one was not returning home, and they were distraught, and they would write to the government, you know, can you help me find you know, my husband, my son? And... Um, they were the, the federal government was just being inundated with correspondence, and so she took on that role officially, and that was her work until 1868. And the missing soldiers' office, um, there was a sign for it 
in the boarding house on 7th Street. We have the original sign. She That summer, she took on um, a very difficult task. She traveled down to Andersonville, Georgia, which um, which had housed a very uh, a notorious um, Confederate prisoner of war camp there. So Union soldiers who had been captured were held a, there a until the end of the war. There. They did. And um, as we read, she... Was uh, she assisted the effort to locate and mark nearly 13,000 Union graves um, at that prisoner of war camp? So that was the summer that the war ended. So afterwards, I believe some of the work still continued, but she became a lecturer, as did many uh, noteworthy uh, people of that uh, of that era. And she lectured throughout the Northeast and through the Midwest, and she would make money for them as well, and some of that would support her efforts. She became exhausted, and um, so her friends convinced her to, to stop, and she left Washington in 1868 at the end of the year, and she went to Europe for several years. And that's where she began to learn about Red Cross efforts in Europe. She was actually there during the Franco-Prussian War, and so she began to learn about uh, humanitarian efforts that were more broad spread and more organized in Europe. And that's the knowledge that she brought back with her when she returned to the United States in the early 1870s. She didn't come back to Washington uh, right away. She, um, I guess she lived in various places on the East Coast. But eventually she did return in the mid-1880s. And uh, part of the story at this point can be picked up by her home in Glen Echo, Maryland, which is managed and interpreted as a National Historic Site by the National Park Service. So uh, if your listeners are interested, they can go to the Clara Barton National Historic Site in Glen Echo, Maryland, and learn about the last years of her life where she, uh, she founded the American Red Cross in 1881. She was living in New York State at the time, but then moved back to Washington for this national effort. Amazing and, woman who's made a difference not only back then, but today with... What is the U.S. or American Red Cross that helps people right. globally? So um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, just uh, if you're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network, and our guest today is Nancy Witherall, GSA PBS. Now, Nancy, I want to fast forward. How did GSA end up with that building? And I got to ask you, is there a fun story about how you discovered what was going on there? I mean, because, you know, no. I, I know in D.C., my, I had shared with you uh, and I'll share with our listeners, my husband is a historic preservation architect. Yeah. And, you know, being a um, historic preservationist, it's really a combination of a couple of things. I mean, you're a little bit of a historian, you're a little bit of an investigator, and there's a, a tidbit of science really into discovering these different things. So how did you yeah. discover or, or fall, you know, stumble upon the, the fact of the history behind this building. There, there is a story there, and I, I do agree with you. I think uh, preservation is a combination of science and art. Um, we acquired the building from the Pennsylvania Avenue, GSA acquired the building from the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Avenue Development Corporation, which had owned it. And they were uh, sunsetted uh, in 1996, and so we acquired their real property. And we were getting ready to market it and to sell it to private sector for development. And so we were doing our due diligence in the building in 1997 when we went up to the third floor and we saw items that clearly had her name on it and were associated with her. Amazing. And, this, and the sign was there. What's interesting is, is that there had been a, a 
you know, a, a, a shoe store on the first floor. I mean, there was an active business, and they used the second floor to store their shoes. The third floor had never been electrified. It's pretty amazing to think this is the end of the 20th century, but that was the case. So lucky for us, because the, build, the third floor was largely intact, and we found samples of wallpaper, and, you know, the floors were original, the plaster, everything was up there. So, I understand you found even some stuff on the battlefield, like tents and, and things that you would use. Yeah, some of her, to- yeah, some of her supplies, like uh, tents, bayonets, and so forth, lists, and even a list of soldiers, I think, who she was looking for, um, were found among her effects. And there were clothing and so forth. She had a, uh, a tenant and a colleague who was also on that floor, so some of the material was his. And he had saved it. He had saved it um, after she had left because he admired her and her work. So um, this made it uh, a very interesting project for us, a preservation project for us to sure. to work with the um, National Museum of Civil War Medicine, which is based in Frederick. And they are our partner, and they manage the museum now, which is open to the public. And you can go up to the third floor, which looks very much as it did at the time. We um, used digital reproductions of the wallpaper to put them back on the wall. We did have to modernize the third floor for climate control and to, to for fire suppression and other code requirements. But uh, we did it very carefully. We uh, The lighting up there is very interesting. It's electric lighting, but it has the appearance of gas lighting, which was used in, in that time. She would have known from her time period. We also did faux graining uh, of the doors. So it's very much as it as it would have looked when she was living there in the 1860s. Well, you know, thank you for all that great work on that building. And if our listeners are interested in going someplace this summer with the kids, I can speak firsthanded. It's a great place to visit. Um, and they can learn more on, uh, we'll put the link to mm-hmm. the website for the museum yep. it's on, right there online. It's right there in Penn Quarter on 7th Street. I'm speaking with Nancy Witherall, GSA PBS. Coming up next, we'll talk about another interesting building here in D.C. And it happens to be one of my favorites, <laughs> the National Building Museum. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today we're talking with Nancy Witherall, GSA PBS. Nancy, the National Building Museum tells stories of the world we design and and build. And from my experience of going there with my four kids, which I did often, I love that place, including the gardens, it's one of the most family-friendly, awe-inspiring spots in Washington, D.C. I mean, you haven't been there, you got to go there. The museum really offers something really for everyone in all different ages, because yep. my kids are, have a pretty yep. big age many, span. Many children's programs I hold there. Yeah, and, and you know, if you're a design buff, uh, especially around buildings, I mean, there's just something for everyone there. Um, when this building was built, what was the original use? I mean, today we go to galas there and, and uh, you know, have fun events there. But what was the building originally built for? It was built to be the pension building. And um, the pension bureau, I guess, had existed before then in various uh, separate buildings around the district. But, of course, after the Civil War with the number of, of veterans, uh, it was very important to um, centralize um, the very important work that they did. So Montgomery Miggs, who's the hero of, of this building. He, he did many great things in D.C. He did. He was, he was an engineer. He was educated at West Point, was a military engineer. 
So he was the designer, uh, the architect of this building and got it built. And um, it sits at the, the north end of Judiciary Square. It's on the 400 block of, of F Street Northwest. And um, we own the building and we lease it for $1 a year to the building museum. And they've been in there, they've been in the building since the 1980s. And so it's now known as the Building Museum, of course. We're happy to have it known that way. The monumental appearance and size of the building really um, reflect the importance and just the magnitude of the work that took place there. Um, I've read that there are over 1,500 pension office clerks. As you can imagine um, how busy the building was. It must have just buzzed with with work at the time, and you can picture them going up and down stairs, and there was a, a dumbwaiter, actually, in the northwest corner of the building that allowed paperwork to Innovation from, back then. Yeah, to move to floor to floor. And um, Montgomery Miggs was, began to, to make quite a few contributions to our infrastructure in Washington before the war, and in fact, he designed, in the 1850s, he designed the Washington aqueduct system that we still use today. It, it brings water in from the Potomac River. So that includes the reservoirs, the conduits, and bridges um, that bring the water into the city. And in fact, the beautiful Captain John Bridge, which I think many of your listeners um, would know, is his work. And he, during the Civil War, he, um, again, as an engineer, had a very important position, maybe one of the, the most important in the Union Army. He was the U.S. Quartermaster General. He, he, he really thought through the design of this building. I was reading, uh, you know, it was way, you know, beyond, it, you know, the current standards for fireproof. Mm-hmm. I, and he and he really thought the about the use. I understand the stairs are designed, uh, you know, mm-hmm. really with the veteran in mind. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, uh, why don't I start at the door and uh, talk about what a visitor would see when you enter? Because one of, uh, I think one of the most beautiful parts of the building is uh, the terracotta panels that run are around the outside in a band. Um, they're in bas relief, which means they're partly carved free and partly attached. And so it's a frieze that runs above the door. And it's so well articulated that it's very easy to look at the individual soldiers and sailors, um, see their uniforms, see their armaments, all entirely accurate. And um, the men are wearing the uniforms of the infantry, uh, the, the branches of the military that fought in, in the Civil War. Infantry, artillery, cavalry, the Navy, and the Quartermaster Corps. And you see their horses and their wagons and so forth. So when you go in, so that's who the building is is for. It's it's for them, and they look very heroic there. And then you go inside, and of course you have this very dramatic open courtyard with these amazing columns that are 75 feet in height. And um, the stairs that go up to the upper floors are very wide, and they're also shallow. The riser is um, just is just a couple inches, so that makes them easier to climb. And it reminds us today of the human cost of the victory that is represented on the frieze around the outside. So the stairs were a humane response to the building's users, who were pensioners who came to to claim their benefits after the war. And as we know, many of them, if they weren't elderly, they might have used a cane or crutches. They might have had had an artificial limb um, because they were disabled. So those stairs really are um, a a testament today to um, a building that was designed for their users. 
You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network, and our guest today is Nancy Witherall, GSA PBS. We are so lucky we live in this city where our the designers really, whether it was LaFont and laying yes. out our, mm-hmm. our, our nation yep. capital, which, by the way, if you've driven in any other major city in you know our nation, uh, it's not we're quite, unique. Yeah, we're unique. It's it's great. It's really true. Um, but you know the the time that he took. Now this is a very large building, very mm-hmm. ornate. Mm-hmm. Um, now you mentioned GSA. GSA maintains it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that seems like a big job. Um, of you know, how does GSA maintain? What's the process that goes through for all of its its historic treasures? Um, and maintaining them. That, that's that got to be a huge job. Well, it involves a lot of research of the building itself and also of documents, um, finding them from, and fortunately, government buildings usually do have research associated with them or documents associated with them. But um, a lot of it is careful looking, trying to match materials that might be missing uh, with with uh, good replacements. I, I, I mentioned earlier, my husband was a historic yeah. preservationist, yeah. which I'll get to our debates we used to have because I ran uh, technology groups in D.C. And, you know, you got to balance that historic preservation with bringing it up today standards. But, um, you know, there's a real science to even figuring out what color the paints are. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes, we do research on paint. And frequently that's just going back to the original layer, which you can Find. You know, you just wear away the layers on top and you can determine the time periods for them and then you can replicate them. So we also have the, the floor tile in that building is encaustic tile. And um, one fun thing that visitors might notice when they go into the elevators, which of course are more recent, is the floors of the elevator replicate in linoleum the same colors that you see in the original encaustic tile once you step out of the elevator onto the onto the floor. So it's a wonderful building. Oh, uh, another thing I can mention is we've saved a little window on one of the large columns. There are eight of these colossal columns on the inside. And one of the columns on the west side has what we call a window in it so that you can look in and see the original layer of the paint. So these columns are made out of brick and then covered with plaster. It was stucco. And then they're marbleized with paint. So we have a little bit of the original painting still left. But otherwise, we, of course, redo that marbleizing as as needed. It's a beautiful building. I know that uh, I had mentioned when I first got out of college, I, I attended the, an inaugural ball for Reagan. I'm aging myself here. Um, there. And, you know, I, I understand that it's been since the 40s. There has been inaugural events there. Earlier than that, the first one was Grover Cleveland in oh 1885. My. Okay. So, so again, a very, very large public building in Washington. Of it's course, gorgeous. it lends itself to all sorts of, of uh, government events, but including inaugural balls. Yeah, it is an amazing building. If you have time this summer, I highly recommend uh, heading down there. Uh, it's a great location and uh, the kids will have fun in the gardens. We didn't even talk about the gardens. Uh, it's just a wonderful location. Um, I'm speaking with Nancy Witherall, GSA PBS. Coming up next, Nancy will share the backstory on another historic building here in D.C., the nation's capital's first skyscraper. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Nancy Weatherall, GSA PBS. Nancy, I read about the window building, 
was considered Washington, D.C.'s first skyscraper. I'm, I'm, I think I pronounced that wrong, Winder, right? Uh, tell us about that building and why it was built. Well, it was an early spec building, actually, in Washington, and it's named for its first owner, William, a gentleman named William Winder, and he constructed the building in 1847 and 48, and it was in a very advantageous location. It was across 17th Street from the executive complex for our government. Um, so the White House was in the middle, and there the early government cabinet buildings. He was the early developer. Right on either side. He saw exactly. the, the rush coming location, to location, location, location. So um, again, you go back to history, and we can learn what we need to do today. Right. So he was there, and it was it was indeed a pretty tall building at the time. It had four full stories and an attic story, and then kind of a above grade ground story. So it was very tall, and um, so it was a private sector for a while. But of course, our government was growing, and um, in the eighteen you know fifties, and outgrowing their spaces. The the um, army was uh, in a building that's now where the Eisenhower Executive Office Building is, to the west of the White House. So the um, Secretary of War, who happened to be Jefferson Davis, purchased the building for the federal government. It was for use by the Army. So he purchased it in 1854. Some of the building was just, you know, I guess maybe six years old at the time. And it was a good building for government use because it was designed to be fireproof and what they thought was fireproof at the time. And um, fire, as we all can imagine, was a, a, a very difficult challenge at the time. Sure. The government was, our government was becoming more sophisticated, the federal government, city government, state governments. And as our country matured and grew and became more sophisticated with our laws, we needed, we had a lot of paperwork. We had deeds and financial documents and so forth. And a fire could be catastrophic. So um, in many parts, uh, especially around the East Coast, people were trying to develop uh, buildings that were more fireproof. And usually that meant iron and brick or masonry. Um, actually, the Smithsonian Castle is another example of a building um, built to be fireproof in the 1840s. As we know now, iron actually can melt at high heat, but it, it was um, the safest material to use at the time. So this building, the Winder Building, has cast iron beams with brick vaults between them, and that's how the building still remains today. Then it's stuccoed on the outside, and there was a wonderful decorative balcony uh, that was placed on the second floor around the building. And the building kind of deteriorated in the in the 1920s, and that balcony was removed, but GSA restored it so let's in, back in up. the 80s. Let's back yep. up a little bit. To the Civil War. Uh, to the, to <laughs> when the Department of Defense yes. actually stayed in that building. They did. Until, yep. It was the Army. Yep. Uh, uh, oh, they moved to the Pentagon in the 40s. Yes, that's right. But, they were there. Yeah, but until. a significant event or, or use of that was... Now, again, it's by our standards today, that building isn't very tall, but it was the tallest mm -hmm. building in Washington, D.C., and it was chosen by the Union Signal Corps excuse me, for point-to-point -point visual communications That's true. with the nearby camp. So it was kind of a location to, for communications slash by. It was, the, it was like exactly. early, early NSA yep. or early yeah. DIA. <laughs> there was a rooftop platform, yes, and with a superstructure on it, and the U.S. Army Signal Corps was there. And other Army offices were in the building, too, including uh, the Commissioner of Pensions, actually, in that era before moving to the pension building. The Army Corps of Engineers was there, the U.S. Quartermaster, and the Surgeon General. So all of these early components of, of, the, of the Army were um, in that building and with the Signal Corps up on the roof. 
Well, the great thing was, I guess the government didn't renovate it in a way that, you know, destroyed uh, the historical significance. So tell me, did you find any interesting things or uh, is there any interesting stories about when GSA took it over and went to preserve it or or any story about buildings like that that you think would be something that our listeners would like it's to It's interesting. I, do, I can't think of any that I know. I know that the military left, as we said, um, in 1941 to go to the Pentagon. And um, so the building then was turned over to GSA for civilian use. And in fact, the, um, the U.S. Trade Representative, in fact, the U.S. Trade Representative is, is in the building now. And so the building's not open to the public, but certainly is very visible from the outside. It is interesting as one of our earliest buildings in our GSA inventory for the National Capital Region. So it really is one of our oldest buildings. And it's in a very prominent location. Uh, we put lime wash on it about every it's five gorgeous. years or so to restore the stucco. Yeah, and its light color really makes it stand out mm-hmm. on the street you as well. You turn around the corner, you. Yep. it really is amazing. It's right there at 17th and G. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. And our guest today is Nancy Witherall, GSA PBS. Nancy, I can just feel your passion for preserving these historic buildings and preserving the history for the next generation. And again, thank you. How did you get into historic preservation? What was your, you know, what, what encouraged you, what inspired you to do this? Well, I, th- um, I grew up in a military family and I lived in Europe when I was a kid. And my parents, of course, took me to all the, the tourists. We went to palaces and you know, places. And uh, we moved to Washington when I was 10. And I remember they're taking me to Williamsburg. And so I became very interested in that. And certainly we have many historic places uh, here in, in the Washington region. The, um, the year I moved here was the year that the uh, Smithsonian American History Museum opened. So wow. that became uh, interesting for me. And... Um, both sets of grandparents lived in 19th century houses up in New England, so I would visit them up there. So I became interested in, in buildings at first, but as I got older and was studying in school, I became interested in, in communities and how um, older buildings added to the texture and interest and the narrative of our, of our downtowns and of our communities. So I became interested in the, the planning and urban design aspect of of um, how to use old buildings and keep them as part of a vibrant uh, community that includes new and old buildings. That's fantastic. If there's a listener out there, or, you know, somebody who's thinking about what to study in school, for example, mm-hmm. which might be some of yeah. my kids, <laughs> if you wanted to pursue a, a career in historic preservation or historic, or become a historic architect, um, what advice would you give them to get started? Well, it's interesting because our field is, it's a professional field, but it's also, it's an interest. And in fact, people come from many professions. I mean, certainly from law, from planning, from architecture, architectural history, which was my, how I got into it. Um, Certainly from conservation and the technical science, uh, scientific aspect of, of materials conservation. So you can enter with any skill, any talent, um, and in terms of how to kind of begin to work with old buildings, um, certainly many of us started as volunteers and um, with an interest in our, you know, studying the history of our communities through local historical societies or advocacy groups, nonprofits. And um, you, it's possible to work in the public sector, you can work in the private sector, the nonprofit sector. So there are all sorts of ways in which um, people who are interested in 
preserving our history through our architecture and through our, our, um, our built environment um, can contribute to the field. So you've been doing this uh, a, a few long time. years. <laughs> <laughs> what was one of the most memorable moments in your career that you just cherish? Well, I, I, I will say this. I had a wonderful opportunity, and I think it was, um, I can't remember now whether it was through D.C. Preservation League or maybe the local chapter of the Society of Architectural Historians, but many years ago I had the chance to look at conservation that was underway at that time in the Lincoln Memorial. And we got to go up on the roof mm-hmm. of the Lincoln Memorial. And I'll always remember just how special that was, just how exhilarating. And it was the same day as the Smithsonian Kite Festival on the Mall. It was oh, a beautiful wow. day in April. And from that view, you really see what um, these early designers who laid out the west end of the Mall um, for the Macmillan plan, just what they achieved with Lincoln Circle and then looking at the Mall in one direction and the river behind us. And it really was spectacular. It made me realize just how special Washington is. We're, we're very I lucky. Guess I, I guess it didn't make me realize. I already knew it. But it just <laughs> it was just an exhilarating moment to, to, to realize how well-placed that memorial is. Well, we've talked about careers, but are there volunteer opportunities to get involved in the preservation efforts or sure. ways to make donations to continue sure. to preserve sure. these for future generations? Yeah, most I'd say most... Um, neighborhoods, most communities in Washington have a local neighborhood group, and and among many other interests, they're interested in um, the historic buildings or the history of the neighborhood. So anyone you know who's living in a in a neighborhood can get involved at that level. We also have citywide advocacy groups like um, the DC Preservation League and the Committee of 100 on the Federal City. Um, we have the Washington Historical Society. There are all sorts of ways that people can learn more and then become engaged. You can be a volunteer at the Building Museum. So there are lots of ways to to be a docent or to be involved, and then that can lead to, to a profession or to a job if, if someone wants to. Is there internships for, for kids out there for the summer? I know that the Smithsonian um, has had them. I assume they still do, mm-hmm. and um, I think... Um, I'm sure many of the advocacy groups would be happy to have interns assist. (laughs) Nancy, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your amazing stories in the history of the legendary buildings in our city. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot